Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas and your host for today's interview. I'm speaking with Mark Santiago, director of the New Mexico Farm and Ranch Heritage Museum in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and the author of A Bad Peace and a Good War. Spain and the Mescalero Apache Uprising of 1795 to 1799, which came out with the University of Oklahoma Press in 2018 and, in 2019, won the Robert M. Utley Award for the Best Military History of the Frontier and West from the Western History Association. Welcome to the New Books Network, Mark. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. So I always like to begin my interviews by just hearing a bit about the guests themselves. So can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, about your background, about how you became interested in history, and about your current work as a museum director? Uh, well, first of all, as I said, I, I just retired at the end of July. Uh, so I, I'm a former museum director at, at this point right now. Um, gotcha. I re- retired from the New Mexico Farm Ranch Heritage Museum. Um, I uh, had always been interested in history as a child growing up. It's uh, what I majored in. I got a bachelor's and master's degree in history. And uh, I went into the museum field. At the time, they called it uh, applied history. They call it museum studies now. But I went into history uh, and to museums, and I got a job with the Arizona Historical Society. And I worked there in, uh, in Yuma and in Tucson and later in, in the Phoenix area. And then uh, I got a job later in my career with the New Mexico Department of Cultural Affairs, first at the Space History Museum in Alamogordo, and then later at the Farm and Ranch Museum uh, here in Las Cruces. And uh, I had about 36 years of, um, of museum experience. And in that time, uh, being a museum guy, especially when I was younger at the Arizona Historical Society, they had a wonderful collection of, of uh, both Spanish uh, colonial uh, artifacts and uh, Native American, especially Apache artifacts, and I became interested in the subject of Spain and especially Spain's uh, um, relationships with various Apache peoples. Uh, I was fortunate in 1994 to be able to do an exhibit uh, on a a guy named Hugo O'Connor, who was an Irishman who fought for the Spanish here in this area, and uh, that led to my first book, uh, and then uh, you write one book and you get interested in other things. And so uh, I've written about four books uh, now. This is my fourth book and uh, maybe a dozen or so articles, uh, mostly on uh, the Spanish military uh, in the, the borderlands uh, region in the 18th century. Can you tell us a little bit also about the New Mexico Farm and Ranch Heritage Museum? Um, I've never been there, but it sounds like a fascinating place. Well, it is. It's wonderful. It's, uh, it's a part of the Depart- New Mexico Department of Cultural Affairs, state organization. Uh, Cultural Affairs has about 15 divisions, uh, and most of those are museums. And we are a museum in, in Las Cruces, which is in the southern part of New Mexico. Uh, and the museum details the 4,000-year-old uh, fascinating history of agriculture in New Mexico. Uh, again, history uh, the agriculture goes back to about uh, 2,500 uh, B.C. or so, all the way up to the present. And the museum is quite interesting in that not only do we have a traditional museum building with traditional museum exhibits, but we also have a working cattle ranch. Uh, we have um, mainly beef cattle, but we have some dairy cattle, as well as uh, horses and mules and sheep, as well as uh, 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 some orchards of uh, things like pistachios and pecans. And so we're able to tell the story not only of New Mexico's agricultural past, but it's present and indeed the future, because we do have that ability to have with our animals uh, uh, a situation where not only do we have a museum, but we also have what would be very much akin to a zoo. Not a lot of museum directors are overseeing uh, a farm and animals at the same time. That must have been a fascinating job. It really was. I, I learned a lot. We, had some, we have a, still do wonderful staff and uh, really got to, you know, I was, I was a city boy from Scottsdale, uh, but uh, I learned about uh, a cattle pretty quick, even had to pull a calf one day. So uh, uh, <laughs> you, you learn how to do things. So it, it was wonderful. And what brought you interested in the topic of, uh, brought you to be interested in the topic of this book, the New Mexico borderlands and warfare during the era of the late Spanish empire? Well, I'd always been interested in, uh, again, the Spanish and the Apache relationships. And 
that interest was really brought out. You know, I, I, I'm from Arizona, and we lived here now in New Mexico for about 20 years, and that's part of the the, uh, the Borderlands area, and so sort of in the air, if you will, here in uh, Arizona and New Mexico and Texas, uh, and so it's just sort of a natural thing to be around, and because I had sort of a, a predilection for uh, military history, and uh, then in my museum uh, career, uh, dealing with um, weapons and uh, armor and things like that from the Spanish period, there was sort of a, a convergence of all of this. And so that got me interested in Spanish military history along the borderlands. And like I say, I wrote uh, several books, each dealing with uh, mainly the 18th century. Uh, and as I was doing normal research, which historians do, uh, I came across for, for this particular book, uh, a reference in several uh, contemporary 18th century documents uh, about a so-called uprising of the Mescalero Apaches in which 56 Spanish troopers were killed. And most of these references were very brief. And when I started to examine things, most of the secondary material uh, really gave short shrift to the events and gave very little detail. And it struck me that, you know, anytime at least 56 guys for the Spanish, you know, only had about 2,000 guys on the whole frontier, this is a really significant loss of manpower. And I, I figured this had to be more to this story than, than uh, just the sort of brief references that, um, that I was finding. And as I dug into uh, primary documents uh, about this event, I uncovered, uh, at least for me, uh, for the first time for myself, uh, that there was a, a plethora, a, a wide uh, amount of, uh, of material on this particular uh, event. And then as I look into the event of, of, the, of the, the so-called uprising, I found that it was much more complex than just sort of a you know, a one-off kind of kind of thing. And it actually uh, led to uh, the realization on my part that this represented a, a significant uh, war uh, in and of itself that the Spanish Empire waged against the Mescalero Apaches for a period of about five years. And that it was, in reality, one of the longest and most uh, sustained military efforts that the Spanish had ever waged uh, along the entire frontier uh certainly in the 18th century and perhaps even through the 17th, 18th, the beginning of the 19th century. So there was much more to the story than uh, I first realized and that I had seen in other documents. And so I thought that it was a story that uh, deserved to be told. One of the many things that I think is fascinating about this book is methodologically, it almost feels kind of like a, like a chronological microhistory. It takes place over a very short period of time. But in that kind of narrow time frame, you dive extremely deeply into the details of what is going on on the ground. Can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to write a book that was fairly short, maybe a decade or so, with a half decade really being kind of the crux of the book? Why you wanted to do that? And what were some of the, the maybe challenges in writing a book of this, of this nature? Okay, uh, well, uh, usually when you, know, you write about the history of the Apaches and the Spaniards, you know, conflict is at the heart of, of their relationship. It always had been and, and would be for almost the entire three or 400 years of time that the Apaches and, and the Spaniards are, are aware of each other. Um, and so I was always sort of interested in that. And because of sort of the, the, the wide breadth of, um, of Apache and Spanish conflict, ranging in an area going from basically the, the middle of Arizona all the way almost to the, the Texas Gulf Coast, a very vast area of several thousand miles. Uh, the things are happening in one particular area that may not be happening in another particular area, and it, it's from a strategic point of view, it's uh, it's very diffuse. Uh, it's hard to get a grasp on what's happening uh, all across the frontier uh, at different times and at different periods. What struck me about this particular conflict. Uh, was that it did occur in a very definable uh, area, both geographically and temporally. And within that area, you know, the Spanish archives, the Spanish are very um, profuse uh, in uh, their production of documentation on everything. They're, they're, they're ultimate bureaucrats. Uh, and while there is much documentation on other warfare and other areas uh, during this period, this um, particular conflict had a lot of, of primary documentation, 
Again, it's almost all from the Spanish point of view, uh, but some of it had references to Apaches, and uh, you're able to see some Apache, um, some Apache personalities, and some idea of how they saw the situation. Again, reflected from the Spanish point of view, but nevertheless still there. And all of this together, the the, the depth of material, uh, the um, uh, the focusing of the material on space and time and the ability to to look at things from both perspectives uh, was really sort of unique in what i would seen before and so uh it, it was really uh it was really kind of exciting to have a a, a a readily definable story uh that was pretty much laid out for you right there well let's get into the book a bit and let's start by setting the scene tell us about the north american southwest the sort of borderland region at the end of the 1780s and the beginning of the 1790s who are some of the historical actors who are present who has power on the ground at this place at this time okay um well uh you know the, the spanish drive uh northward uh to what we now call in america the spanish borderlands or the south it begins with the conquest of Cortez in the 16th century, and there's a gradual movement northward uh, to um, uh, to take over essentially um, lucrative mining areas. Uh, very quickly on this, throughout the seven, late 16th, early 17th century, throughout the, the rest of the 17th century, the Spanish are hitting mining um, uh, mining bonanzas in cities, gradually moving northward. Uh, starting out first with in Mexico City, then they move forward into Durango and Zacatecas and later Chihuahua. And all of these places are moving forward uh, north towards uh, uh, the Rio Grande, essentially. Um, Tom, at the same time that the Spanish are having these mining bonanzas, the uh, one of the ways that they're trying to control the native inhabitants is through uh, forced acculturation through missions, basically having... Catholic priests, Dominican orders, uh, uh, Franciscans, Jesuits, Augustinians, uh, mainly Franciscans and Jesuits, uh, go north and try to uh, gather the Indians together into agricultural settlements and then uh, uh, acculturate them, have them become tax-paying citizens of the Republic. Uh, so there's sort of two things going on. There's mining bonanzas and there's missions going on. And because of this, the Spanish move northward is very chaotic. It's not very well planned out. It's at least from a strategic level. Things are happening. Boom towns are happening. Uh, missions are happening. Some are successful. Some aren't. And so you get gradually by the end of the of the uh, of the 17th century a very haphazard northern frontier. In the beginning of the 18th century, the uh, it's a little bit of a European history here. Uh, the Spanish Habsburg dynasty is replaced by the Spanish Bourbon dynasty in the year 1700. And following that, the Bourbon kings initiate what they're called the Bourbon reforms. They're trying to um, uh, bring a bit more order out of chaos, mainly in order to get more money uh, uh, from uh, especially Mexico uh, and to sort of be able to defend things. Back up here for a quick second. Uh, New Spain, which is Mexico mainly, uh, in the 18th century is the richest country in the world by far. New Spain itself produces probably a quarter, perhaps up to a third, of all the silver that is used in the entire world. Okay? And New Spain is the milch cow of the Spanish Empire. It is the economic ba basis of which Spain is able to control her vast empire is through Mexican silver and the, and the, the, the monies that that pours out and so there's this great uh, need to defend uh, New Spain and the silver production there. Jumping ahead a little bit, in uh, what we call the French and Indian War in the United States, which was a seven years war in the rest of, the, of Europe, uh, Spain is, uh, joins France late in the conflict, and both France and Spain are suffer a humiliating defeat at the hands of Great Britain. Uh, this is in 1762, 63, 64. The uh, Spanish uh, lose uh, the island of Cuba and the, the city of Havana, which is the, the entrepot, the, 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 the port from which all the silver goes to, from the New World to, to Spain. In order to get that back, they give the, the, uh, the British Florida and the French give them Louisiana. 
And so you have this international scene happening. As a result of this loss in the war, King Carlos III of Spain realizes that there's going to be another war eventually with Great Britain, which there will be in the 1770s and 80s, the War of the American Revolution. And Spain will have to fight Britain again. And so these Bourbon reforms are designed to get uh, military efficiency and financial stability prior to this next great war. As part of these reforms along the northern frontier of New Spain, what's now Mexico, the crown comes up with the idea of establishing a, def a defensive uh, line, presidios of the line, presidios or forts, uh, and along this line, they will uh, introduce a combined military command that will have control over all the military forces, essentially from California to Louisiana and all the in, all the area in between. Beginning in the seventeen mid seventeen sixties through the seventeen seventies, the Spanish will establish what's called the line of presidios. Presidios again are fort and its garrisons. Uh, that will follow the course of the Rio Grande and a line of 30 degrees north latitude, which amazingly, if you look at the map, is the present international boundary. Uh, this is the area that Spain actually controls, although there are some fingers going north, uh, such as at San Antonio, Texas, or in uh, Albuquerque and Santa Fe, New Mexico. But for the most part, uh, the, the frontier lies along what is now the, the international border. The Spanish recognized very quickly on that the interior provinces, as this northern frontier is called, the interior provinces of New Spain, uh, is a potential area for invasion uh, from either first the French, later the British, and later the Americans, for um, an attack on the Mexican silver mines in a bit farther south, Durango, Zacatecas, etc., uh, which are vulnerable. And of course, silver is the most important thing uh, that the Spanish have. So the Spanish are trying to uh, defend this area to the best of their abilities uh, in case there would be such, just such an attack. And it's interesting to note uh, that uh, in 1846, when the Mexican-American War starts, uh, the Americans, the United States, uh, attacks the northern frontier, uh, especially uh, in a way that the Spaniards had thought that the British or the French or the Americans would do 40 years earlier, which is interesting to see that they, their suspicions were correct. Within this area, along the northern frontier, the major problem the Spaniards have is not Europeans, but independent indigenous peoples who are attacking Spanish settlements and uh, raiding for livestock, slaves, that type of thing. The most numerous and the most bothersome from the Spanish point of view are the Apaches. And the Apaches range in autonomous bands, again, basically from central Mexico or central Arizona, excuse me, all the way across eastern Arizona, uh, I mean, Arizona, simple Arizona, eastern Arizona, all of New Mexico, and most of Texas, even going up into Colorado and places like that. The Apaches are uh, first and foremost uh, raiders uh, and assassins. Uh, they are not a warrior people per se. Uh, they do not have warrior societies like other um, uh, indigenous peoples like the Cheyenne or the Sioux or the Comanche. Uh, however, they're very bothersome to the Spanish in that uh, the Apaches uh, had been for centuries raiding the sedentary peoples, indigenous peoples of the region, such as the Puebloan peoples of New Mexico and the Oodam peoples of Arizona, the, the Pima and Papago, as they were called. Uh, and when the Spanish come in and basically um, take over these indigenous peoples, the Apaches begin to raid the Spanish just as well. The attacks of the, of the Apaches uh, along the interior provinces um, do not really threaten Spain's hold on it, uh, but they do divert uh, resources, uh, military and financial, that probably could be used better elsewhere. 
So from the imperial point of view, the Spanish want to find the quickest, cheapest, and easiest way to take care of the Apaches, to get them to be quiet. Uh, there's a great line that Bill Cosby had in his book called Fatherhood. We talked about parents are not interested in justice, they're interested in quiet. Well, along the northern country, the Spanish are not interested in justice, they're interested in quiet. They want the Apaches to settle down. The question is, how are you going to get them to settle down? Well, for about 20 years, beginning in the 1770s and lasting through the 1790s, the Spanish have what I call the confusion of power. The Spanish have the ability to crush the Apaches if they want to, militarily. The question is, what is the reason to compel them to do so? Well, they don't really have one, especially if they're looking to retrench, especially if they're looking to um, economize on their forces. So what they come up with is an old Roman tactic, which is divide and conquer idea of the mailed fist uh, within the velvet glove. The, the uh, Spanish will begin to uh, fluctuate between attempts to destroy the Apaches militarily or to reach some accommodation with them to settle them down uh, on what are essentially reservations uh, and uh, acculturate them to the point where they're no longer bothersome. Beginning in the 1770s, there will be, again, this fluctuation. The, 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 the interior provinces are placed under a separate military commander. First is a man named Hugo O'Connor, who is one of the Irish wild geese, uh, who is a, a religious and, and political exile from Ireland, who joins the Spanish army, rises very far. His uncle is, is Alejandro O'Reilly, one of the premier Spanish officers of the 18th century. O'Connor is given the title of a Commandant Inspector of the Interior Provinces. He is uh, ordered to basically form the Presidio Line, which he does between 1774 and 1776. At the same time, he wages two massive campaigns against the Apaches, again, along the entire frontier, which are fairly successful. However, in 1777, the Spanish decide to upgrade interior provinces into what's called a Comandancy General, the Comandancia General de las Provincias Internas. O'Connor is replaced by uh, a Commandant General. He had been Commandant Inspector. Now there's a Commandant General by the name of Theodore de Croix, known as the Caballero de Croix. Uh, he is a Fleming, or what we call a Belgian, very well connected in the Spanish um, court. And he's the ultimate bureaucrat. Where O'Connor had been a warrior, Croy was much more of a bureaucrat. He uh, halts the um, the aggressive uh, uh, actions that O'Connor had engaged in and tries accommodation. He tries to settle the Apaches in at least a few of them in what are known as establecimientos, means a peace establishment. It's essentially a reservation. The idea is that the Apaches will uh, be come to reside outside of Spanish presidios, Spanish forts. Uh, they will be given a, uh, a monthly bowl of beef and sugar and cigars and tobacco uh, and encouraged by the Spaniards to adopt a less violent lifestyle. Unfortunately for Croy, his idea doesn't work. Uh, the 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 Apaches are very diverse people. We'll talk about here in just a moment. And so Croy's attempts at peace fail. When he leaves in 1784-85, there is an attempt by a man by the name Bernardo de Galvez, who is the new viceroy of Spain, or of New Spain, I should say, of Mexico, uh, to institute, uh, he thinks the the Interior provinces are too big, and so he breaks them in half. He puts a commandant general in the east and a commandant general in the west. And he hopes that they'll work together to help crush the Apaches. Unfortunately, Galvez dies very soon thereafter. And the commandant generals of the east and the west, uh, for about the next um, 10 years, uh, will begin to feud with each other and have different uh, policies. Usually, those in the west will favor accommodation. 
while those in the East will favor uh, crushing the male fist and the velvet glove. The result is that you have this confusion of power. Spaniards in one part of the, the, of the interior provinces are trying peace, in the other part, they're trying war. The Apaches will play this off very well. They'll go from one side to the other, depending what, on, uh, what the local situation is. And the result is that there is not any uh, peace. There's, there's, there's a little bit here and a little bit there, but then it, it's, it's not uniform. Beginning in 1790, an important guy who I read about in the book, his name is Pedro de Nava. He will become the new commandant uh, uh, general. And by 1792, he is, uh, 1793, he becomes the commandant general of the entire frontier. The Spanish, once again, have a single commander over their military frontier. And this is key. Because Nava will take the best of both worlds and basically begin to uh, try to have the Apaches settle down in the reservations, establishmentos. But at the same time, he warns them that, okay, here's the establishmentos, here's the reservation. We will feed you. We'll take care of you. Uh, we'll even use you as auxiliaries to help us fight other Indians. So you, the Apaches' native uh, proclivity to violence will be tapped. Uh, however, if you push us too far, if you get a little too noisy, a little too rambunctious, we'll hunt you all down and we'll kill you all. And as an emphasis of that, Nava accelerates an old Spanish practice of deporting Apaches captured in, in battle, prisoners of war, uh, from the frontier to Cuba, where they will be uh, placed in uh, uh, essentially slave labor uh, to work on the um, fortifications at Havana and other places. And even after this, it's supposed to be for 10 years, if the Apaches survive that 10 years, they'll never be allowed to go back uh, to the frontier. So the Spanish begin to use a, a very stark choice for all of the Apaches. And this is the situation that begins uh, in the, when the book begins, and that's 1795. Um, so beginning in the late 1780s, there had been the attempts to have the establishment of Paz for various Apaches. I'm going to stop now for a moment and talk about the Apaches. Um, yes, of course. The Apaches are, uh, there are no Apaches, first of all. Okay? It's an outside term given to them by Puebloan people, possibly Zuni people, possibly means enemy. Apaches have no sense of either pan-Indianism or pan-Apacheism, as I could make up a word. Uh, they are atomistic to an extraordinarily small degree. Uh, within Apache society, um, every head of household, every male head of household, is essentially an autonomous being, and his family is with him. He can do what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants, regardless of any larger uh, social or political grouping. These heads of household are usually heads of what the Spanish will call rancherias. A rancheria is mainly means an encampment, you know, a, a group of tents, if you will. Uh, but it, it actually comes to mean a, an extended family. That is the primary identification among all the Apaches is their rancheria first. Okay? They will uh, not necessarily see themselves as part of a larger band or tribe. Now, outsiders, the Spanish will fall into this, later the Americans, the Mexicans as well, will try to, because you know we're Western people, we like to we have, like, have order, and so we must classify everything. And so they group the Apaches into what they regard as tribes. So you have uh, in, in, the far, uh, in the far west, you have the Tonto, or what we now call the White Mountain Apaches of Arizona, to their south and, uh, and east, you have the Chiricahua people, which have several distinct bands. Then sort of in the middle, in what is now New Mexico and West Texas, you have the Mescalero people. And then farther east, you have the Lipan and the Hikaria Apaches. And they're more buffalo people, living on, living on the Llano Estacado. Mescaleros, which we deal, about, deal with in this, um, in this book, are in a unique biographic or biographical, at least biological zone, where the Apaches to the west, uh, the, 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 the White Mountain, the Tonto, the Chiricahua, 
are mainly um, mountain people. Uh, they, uh, they grow their own food to a certain extent, a little bit less than subsistence. They subsist on uh, game and wild, wild uh, uh, fruits and uh, grains. To the farther east, the Lapan, the Hickoria, they are buffalo people. They are on the southern Great Plains. Uh, they hunt buffalo. Uh, that is their primary source, just like the Comanche and the Cheyenne and the Sioux. They're sort of the sort of traditional uh, Hollywood view of Indians. In the middle are the Mescaleros. The Mescaleros live along the Rio Grande in the mountains of what is now central New Mexico, all the way down to the Big Bend of, uh, of the Rio Grande in what is now West Texas. And they live in a transitional zone. They live in an area that allows them to go out onto the Buffalo Plains and hunt like their Lapan and Hickoria cousins. But they're also mountain people in that they can go back to the mountains of the Sacramento Mountains of central New Mexico, Guadalupe Mountains of West Texas, uh, and live closer to the lifestyle that the Chiricahua and uh, White Mountain Apaches have. So they're, to a certain extent, get the both, both of best worlds. So... Within Mescalero society, like Apache society uh, as a whole, these larger groupings that the outsiders have uh, are not necessarily how they see themselves, meaning the Apaches. So, for example, the Spanish will give to the Apaches in, in central New Mexico, West Texas, the title of Mescalero, which means mezcal eaters. Mescal is a um, form of yucca. Uh, that uh, it's a plant here grows in the southwest and uh, has an edible root, and you can harvest it certain times and it will provide good sustenance. And so the Spanish identify them as mezcal eaters, mezcalero. However, amongst the mezcaleros themselves, there's at least four or five different groupings. They see the people. There's there's names that mean the people against the mountains, uh, the peoples near the plain, the peoples near the water. And so, again, they don't see themselves as outsiders do, and they do not have any type of political organization to speak of. Again, any independent head of a rancheria can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. This is especially confusing and confounding to the Spanish because one of the best things that Apaches do, and Mescaleros especially, is raid. And they raid for horses, they raid for cattle, they raid for slaves. They've been doing this for centuries before the Spanish came against the Pueblo and other peoples. Again, when the Spanish come, they simply pick up and have a new person to go after. For the Spaniards, the idea of this raiding is extremely confusing because they'll attempt over and over and over and over again to make peace with a group of Mescalero or Apache people that they think speaks for a larger group, speaks for a tribe or speaks for a band. And there's treaty after treaty after treaty after treaty, all of which are broken by the Apaches. Why? Because the guy who is talking and making peace with the Spaniards, and the Spaniards never figure this out, is only talking for himself. He has no control over anybody else. And so if a guy, Apache family leader, was not there and didn't sign the peace treaty. He has no problem with going out and continuing raiding. And the Spanish kind of go to the guy they signed the peace treaty with and say, wait a minute, you said you were going to control this guy. And he can't. So you have this attempt by the Spanish, the Americans will do the same thing, the Mexicans will do the same thing, to negotiate as they would with a nation state with an indigenous people who have no political organization that's worth anything to uh, to negotiate with. And so this is the basic conundrum the Spanish have with the Apaches. I'm not talking too long on this. <laughs> no, no, not at all. So, second thing about the Apaches. The Apaches have a very distinct version or vision, I should say, of warfare. Again, they are not a warrior society in the way that we think of. Uh, no uh, self-respecting Apache is going to go out and fight to the death uh, in a you know uh, blaze of glory uh, if he can help. 
Apaches do not look at warfare that way. They look at warfare as in two phrases. One is for taking things from the enemy, which is mainly livestock or, again, people, slaves, uh, or goods. And the other is taking life from the enemy. Taking life from the enemy is to go out and kill somebody. Why do the Apaches want to go out and kill somebody? Well, most Apaches don't. They want to go out there and get stuff. They get stuff that will help them in, you know, horses that will give them prestige, help them get a wife, help them become a, a bigger man in society, that type of thing. They're not really interested in killing anybody. However, when you go out, especially with, among the Spaniards, uh, when you start stealing their horses, sometimes they get angry and they shoot at you and they kill you. Well, for the Apaches, this becomes a, a cultural imperative to avenge the death of one of their own, whether it's killed by an outsider or by another Apache. There must be what the uh, Italians would call vendetta. There must be blood for blood. However, for the Apaches, the taking of a life or blood for blood is not necessarily confined to the person or the group that inflicted the casualty on them. So, for example, if a Spanish soldier or settler in this, the city of El Paso, let's say, shoots and kills an Apache trying to steal his horse, Apaches will demand blood for blood. However, they don't necessarily go after the guy who did it or even the community who did it. So these Apaches might be, a month or two later, going around, and let's say they're near Albuquerque, New Mexico, 250 miles from El Paso. Well, they'll kill a Spaniard, the first Spaniard that they see. And to them, that will satisfy the blood for blood, even though the guy that they killed in Albuquerque had nothing to do with what happened with the Apache who was killed in El Paso. For the Apaches, the idea of personal responsibility is absolutely foreign. What matters to them is that the other must suffer. Okay? So if a Spaniard kills an Apache, the Apache, that group of Apaches, will seek vengeance against any other Spaniard that they happen to come across, because that's the other. Okay? It doesn't matter. They're not looking in justice. They're looking to balance that blood. Well, this is the nature of warfare among the Apache peoples with the Spanish. Somebody's killed. The Apaches feel they got to go out and kill somebody else. But they won't kill somebody in this area. They'll kill somebody in that area. So for the Spaniards, it looks like, my God, these Apaches are going all over the place, killing people without any, you know, uh, pattern. They're striking where they want against anybody that they want. How are we going to contain this? Well, again, the cheapest, easiest, quickest way to do it, eventually Pedro de Nava comes up with the idea, again, the veil the velvet glove and the mail fist. We will ask them to settle down. We will give them incentives to settle down, to stay near the, uh, the presidios. We'll try to regulate their behavior as much as we can. We'll try to not necessarily turn them into Christians, which many of the Spanish priests in the area are vehemently uh, opposed to the idea that they're not going to try to turn them into, into Catholics or Christians. Uh, but again, the Spanish military wants quiet. And what the Spanish are attempting to do throughout the northern frontier throughout the 18th century is to use a, we would call it, an, I'll call it anachronism. They're attempting to apply what the United States and the Soviet Union agreed to in the 20th century. They are looking for deterrence. Okay? The Spanish are not necessarily looking to conquer the Apaches. They're not necessarily looking to convert them to Christianity. They're looking to deter them to such a level that the violence is manageable. Okay? And this is why the whole idea of the establishment of Paz, getting them near a reservation, calming them down, regulating the violence, keeping it on a low level, this has become official Spanish policy. So this is what's happening in the 1770s, 80s, and 90s. And again, by about 1792, 3, 4, and 5, there are about 11 different reservations scattered throughout the interior provinces. There are about 2,500, 2,000 Apaches. Spanish will call them Apaches de Paz, peaceful Apaches, versus Apaches de Guerra, Apaches of War. There may be 
10 or 15,000 Apaches all told. So the Spanish maybe have a fifth of them somewhat acculturated or under control, or at least they think. And that's where the story of the Mescalero uprising begins. So let's talk about that uprising then. What are, you did a great job of setting the scene, kind of putting all the pieces in place, but what sparks this conflict? What are the immediate origins of this uprising? Well, the immediate origins are um, Mescaleros, and a good number of them were at um, the, uh, there have been a couple, uh, at least two, maybe three um, establishments, uh, reservations, one outside of El Paso, what would now be El, El Paso, Texas, or Juarez, uh, Juarez, Chihuahua, right across the border from El Paso. Uh, and a little farther down, about 40 miles down, there was another place called San Elisario, still San Elisario, Texas. There was a reservation there. And then farther south uh, to where Presidio, Texas is now, uh, kind of Ojinaga, uh, Mexico, there's also a, a third Mescalero reservation. A fair number of Mescaleros are there and stay, you know, regularly. Others from the hinterland will come in every now and then to get a beef or cigars. There's a low level of, um, uh, of violence or some, you know, cattle theft, horse theft, that kind of thing, a, a, a random killing every now and then. But things are fairly calm. Then about 1794, 1793-94, uh, something absolutely nothing to deal with the frontier affects the frontier. Like most imperial powers, Spain has, has a holdings across the world. Spain at the time is a major military power, uh, major imperial power. And in 1793, Spain will go to war with revolutionary France, uh, the beginning of the French Revolution. Uh, and the Spaniards will... Uh, Little war for about two years. It's called the War of the Pyrenees with Revolutionary France. Uh, and at that time, in order to save money and to divert it to imperial defense, the Spanish uh, begin to divert resources from what they consider extraneous things, such as the establishmentos for the Apaches. And so they begin to tell the Apaches, look, we're not going to give you as much food as we were before. And we're really not going to give you very much at all. You can go out into the hinterland and support yourself. We're still going to expect you to live the way we want you to live and not raid, not, not uh, attack our settlements. So there's a diminution of, a, 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 a diminution of support at the, at the frontier. Other Apaches, such as the Chiricahua and some of the Lapans, don't really resent it. But for some reason, the Mescaleros do. Uh, or at least a large number of them do more so than than others. Beginning about 1795, after about a year of this, you know, scanty or, or, or shrinkage of, of support, the Mescaleros, or at least a large number of them, uh, all of the Apaches at the at the establishmentos. Uh, there always will be a split. There will always be some that are on the Spanish side. There will always be some that are, are totally against the Spanish, and there'll be a large number in between who will will be. Uh, if things are looking good, they'll, they'll they'll stay on the Spanish side. If things look bad, they'll go to the the, uh, the warrior side or the the anti-Spanish side. There's always a mix of uh, Apaches coming and going, so it's very hard for the Spanish to identify who's who. In any particular uh, uh, specificity. So then in 1795, it appears that a large group of Apaches, probably about three or four hundred of them, were going to uh, launch a raid into Spanish territory, not along the frontier, but they were going to go deeper into Spanish territory uh, and, uh, you know, go on a big cattle raid, big horse raid. Well, they're waiting basically in the area what's known as the uh, Pittman Mountains of West Texas, the border between, uh, between Texas and Mexico. There's a large grouping of them there. They're having ceremonial things. They've sent out a couple small parties. And um, totally by accident, on August 9th, one group of Spanish soldiers, about 50 men, uh, stumbles upon the, the Mescaleros. And the Mescaleros see them coming and figure, you know, God, if they 
see us here, you know, we're in trouble. What do we do? And I said, the, 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 the bellicose ones get the upper hand. And so they ambush the Spanish and they kill about half of them. Well, three days later, another Spanish patrol from another area coming from farther east, the same thing happens. They're, they're patrolling their areas. They're supposed to. They stumble upon the Mescaleros. Uh, and again, another 25 or so Spanish uh, uh, killed. So in both of these ambushes, about 56 Spaniards are killed. Well, to the Spanish, this is a total surprise. Wait a minute. What's going on? We thought the Apaches... Mescaleros, we know, so we've been just talking to some, you know, they were there. We didn't expect this at all. And for the Mescaleros, the thing, it seems to have been a surprise too. They were planning on attacking these Spanish uh, patrols. They just happened to stumble upon them. Uh, and then again, they get the better of them. Uh, after they, they defeat the Spanish, they get bunches of horses and guns and they capture the Spanish supply train. So they're all happy. They got all kinds of stuff. And uh, they go back home thinking, okay, well, we don't need to go into central Mexico to raid stuff. We'll just take what we got from this couple of Spanish patrols. Well, from the Spanish point of view, this attack is uh, unparkable. Uh, here were Apaches at peace with us. Uh, and for no reason at all, they attacked our, our folks. And they did. The Mescalera is the one who started it. Okay. Well, the Commandant General of the Interior Provinces, Pedro Nava, after sort of a, a first, you know, shock of what's going on, uh, basically decides that we're not going to have this anymore. Because he realizes that the Mescalera sort of being in the middle of the interior provinces, if they're allowed to get get away with this aggression, and then Lapan's farther to the east might do the same, and the Shirakawa's farther to the west might do the same. So he decides to make a strategic decision that uh, they are going to crush the Mescaleros. Uh, and that there's this, this needs to be as a signal to all the Apaches, basically, do not mess with us. And to make a long story short, he basically will organize his forces in a, on a very, very skillful level. He will begin to launch punitive uh, expeditions, not just to stop the Mescaleros from coming into Spanish territory, but going into their homelands, going across the uh, the Rio Grande attacking them in their own lands, and he will organize his forces in such a way that the Spanish will continue to launch strikes against the Mescaleros wherever they can find them, all along basically from what would now be central to New Mexico to the Big Bend country of West Texas, very large area, constant expeditions, especially expeditions in the winter time. Because the, the Mescaleros usually, like most indigenous people, don't fight in the winter, right? Winters are harsh. Uh, they'll go and they'll hunt buffalo uh, in the late uh, fall. They'll get you know tons and tons of buffalo meat, all the stuff that they need. They'll then retreat into the mountains and have enough in their larder to last them till spring. Well, Pedro de Nava and his officers, especially the guy with the Colonel Antonio Cordero, very uh, aware of Apache lifestyles and Mescalero lifestyles, begin to launch these attacks in the wintertime or at the time when the Mescaleros are trying to go to the Buffalo Hunts. Uh, so the, basically the Spanish destroy their enemy's commissariat. They basically make it impossible for the Mescaleros to feed themselves. And after about four and a half years of constant, 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 attacks into their own homeland, destroying their ability to feed themselves, Mescaleros sue for peace. Uh, there may be approximately 5,000 Mescaleros at the beginning of the war. At least 750 of them are killed uh, and probably more. So you're looking at a casualty rate of somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 percent of the entire population. Uh, absolutely brutal. Uh, and absolutely, um, totally victorious from the Spanish And there are a few points um, in the story that you tell where global events have important implications for the uh, the war between the Spanish Empire and the Mescalero Apache people. And one that jumps to mind immediately is the capture of Puerta Espana. And that's just one example of many, which reverberates throughout Mexico. So can you talk a little bit about this, how this conflict was kind of nestled into larger global imperial conflicts at the end of the 18th century? Sure. Um, the, The problem the Spanish have, again, 
uh, is again, they are an imperial power. And uh, again, we, we talked about how at the beginning of the war may have been triggered by Spain's need for more money and more resources in fighting in uh, revolutionary France in 1793 and 94. Well, almost immediately after the Spanish defeated by revolution France, the Spanish will switch sides and join France against Great Britain. So in 1796 and 97, uh, Spain goes to war with Great Britain, uh, which is disastrous for Spain. Uh, again, there's there's the need for uh, retrenchment and money and, and things like that. Uh, in this later period, beginning about 1796, which is really the sort of the second year that uh, that uh, Commandant General Pedro de Nava was going to, you know, launch his, his uh, strikes against the the, uh, the Mescaleros, he begins to get frantic um, reports from the Viceroy in New Spain, a guy by the name of the Marquis de Brancaforte, um, that the British are planning to attack um, Mexico, again, to seize the sword. And there are indications, uh, the British, the Spanish have spies in, of, of all places, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, and uh, a spy in Baltimore, Maryland, picks up a report that 10,000 British troops are going to be sent uh, across Canada and uh, coming down the Missouri and Mississippi rivers, attack Spanish posts in what is now Louisiana and Illinois, and then uh, divert towards uh, the interior provinces. There's also a report the Spanish has spies in uh, Asia that a, a British expeditionary force from India is uh, going to attack Spanish California. And so in the midst of trying to focus on the Mescaleros, uh, Commandant General Pedro de Nava is told by his superiors, you need to send some of your boys to make sure the California is secure. You need to send some more of your boys eastward towards Louisiana to make sure there's no British coming down there. Well, this all sounds rather fanciful to us, you know, knowing what we know and knowing the uh, how far it is from Canada uh, to New Mexico and the difficulties that would that would entail. Uh, but in reality, the British actually did have contingency plans to sail down the Missouri, to sail down the Mississippi from Canada, and to attack Spanish holdings along the frontier as diversionary attacks. Okay, so. It's not, um, the Spanish were right, the British were planning things like that. The British didn't do it, but how do you know at the time? So in 1796 and 97 especially, peace will be made a little, a little bit later with Great Britain, Spain will sue for peace. Um, but at the time, uh, these imperial entanglements are happening. And one of the reasons the Spanish think that the British might attack the interior provinces is that in 1797, the British send out, the Britannia rules away, the British have great maritime resources. The British attack out of the blue, the island of Trinidad and the uh, Spanish garrison and small Spanish fleet uh, for uh, ships in the line that were in what is called Puerto España, Port of Spain uh, in Trinidad. Just out of the blue, the Spanish have no idea that the guys in Trinidad don't even know they're at war yet. And all of a sudden, here comes this British expeditionary force of about 15,000 guys, including, you know, about a dozen ships of the line, uh, totally out, uh, outnumbers the Spanish. The Spanish uh, try to uh, uh, deny their ships to the British and set them on fire. One doesn't catch on fire, and the British captured the Spanish governor of, of Trinidad doesn't know what to do. The British land unopposed, seize the island bloodlessly. This particular British attack reverberates throughout the Spanish Empire. It's one of the reasons I chose it for the book, in that basically the Spanish realize that the British can strike them anywhere. They can strike the Spanish Empire anywhere at any time. In reality, the Spanish will not be able to do a darn thing about it. So this makes the idea that the British might attack the northern frontier or Mexico much, much, much more real. To Spanish in the military. So, to kind of come to the, the the end of the story, what are the long term implications of this conflict, both for the Apaches themselves and for the Spanish Empire? Well, for the Spanish, uh, for the Apaches themselves, uh, the Mescaleros especially, uh, 
all the consequences are bad. <laughs> uh, you know, again, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 percent of the entire population is either killed, captured, or deported uh, to Cuba, never to be seen again. So the Mescaleros learn a very, very hard lesson. You know, don't mess with the Spaniards. And so while there will essentially be a return to the establishmentos by the Mescaleros, there'll be essentially a status quo antebellum. A very, very harsh lesson has been learned, one that will temper a, a mescalero resistance for the remainder of, Spanish, of the Spanish period. But really, the mescaleros won't mess with anybody else uh, until the Americans come in the 1840s and 50s. Other Apaches, the Chiricahuas to, uh, to the west, the Lapans to the east, there's an object lesson here. Uh, is that, oh my God, these Spaniards can, if they really want to, come after us with everything they've got and, you know, put us in a world of hurt. And the result will be, in the short term, that the, there will be a period of relative peace beginning about 1800 and lasting until about 1820 throughout uh, the northern frontier, uh, especially among the Apaches. The Apaches de Paz will continue to more or less accept the bargain they had with the Spaniards, that we, we will... We will not go crazy with our attacks, you know, as long as you feed us and take care of us. And there begins to be, by about 1810, 1815, 1820, a gradual acculturation of the, of the Apaches along the frontier. And this is where the tragedy comes in. If the Spanish Empire had lasted another 10 or 20 years, maybe another generation, the Apaches probably would have been acculturated and become what the Spaniards wanted them to indigenous people within the empire. However, it didn't turn out that way. And in 1821, Mexico gains independence from Spain. The Apaches and the Mescaleros, especially, don't really understand the change in, in government. You know, they're still dealing with the same guys who were one day they were called Spaniards, now they're called Mexicans. Okay, fine. However, the Mexican Republic... Uh, the Mexican Empire, the Mexican Republic in the 1820s and 30s is chaotic. Uh, Mexico is, uh, her independence is much, much different than the United States. Basically, uh, in Mexico, what happens is the, the royalists win. The patriots don't win. Okay? Uh, imagine if George Washington had been captured and executed, and then uh, Lord Cornwallis, uh, after controlling all of um, of the United States, there had been a revolution in Britain, and he decides to name himself uh, Emperor of the British Empire or of, of the 13 colonies. That's essentially what happens in Mexico. The, there's a, in 1821, there's a, there's a reactionary revolt in Spain. And so while the royalist cause, the conservative cause in Mexico won the war, the War of Independence, they declare independence from a temporarily liberal Spain. And once they had independence, they, they don't go back. The result is that the social problems that plagued Mexico and still do plague Mexico were never solved. And so in Mexico, what happens is you begin to get a Praetorian tradition where um, generals become the most powerful political entities. And you have a series of coup d'etats. Uh, they're called golpe de estado in Spanish, where generals mostly after a couple of years, will you know launch a, a a rebellion against the central government. This happens over and over and over and over again uh, in Mexico between 1821 and 18 uh, the 1840s and 50s. The result for our story is that the chaos among the central government in Mexico absolutely destroys the system of the establishmentos. There's no longer any money. There's no longer money for soldiers, no, no longer money for the presidios, let alone money for uh, the beef and sugar given to the Apaches. Tragically, the Apaches try to keep going. They like the system. At least until 1830, they try to work with Mexicans to, to continue the system. But the central government simply can't sustain it for a variety of reasons. And so in 1831, about 1831, 1832, the Apaches begin to abandon the establishment as they return to their own traditional ways of raiding uh, and violence. 
And so from about 1830 to the coming of the Americans to the 1850s, the Apaches, even though they remembered the establishmentos of the Spanish and wanted to have that relationship, Mexico simply can't sustain it. They return to violence. They return to raiding. They return to warfare. And when the Americans come in the 1850s, they will find the Spanish are only partially, or excuse me, the Apaches are only partially acculturated, that they're still extremely violent. And the tragedy is that beginning in 1846, 1848, the Americans in the next 40 years will have to do the exact same thing that the Spaniards did in the late 18th century, uh, to go to war with the Apaches, establish the velvet glove in the mailed fist, eventually put them on reservations. Uh, And so it's a great tragedy, I think, if you see that uh, history can repeat itself uh, with great tragic events. Uh, Again, the lessons learned by the Spaniards will have to be relearned by the Americans, and there will be another 50 years of of violence and forced acculturation, uh, which is if you look at it from a long uh, point of view, is really, again, a great tragedy. So um, you sort of just addressed this question a second ago, but maybe to put a finer point on it, if there's one takeaway that you hope readers come away from this book understanding, what might that be? Well, I'd hope that, first of all, they learn uh, a couple things. One is the, the horrors of war. Uh, there's a couple instances I'm able to, to point out that really show uh, how terrible war is, and, and not just in terms of physical violence, uh, but sort of cultural and psychological as well. Uh, there's there's a there's a, a great uh, a story where the Spanish uh, in, in midwinter attack a group of about 75 to 100 mescaleros, uh, and mostly mescaleros they, you know get away. They're able to escape the Spaniards, uh, but the Spanish are able to destroy everything they've got. They just, they burn their the, the their teepees, their lodges. Uh, they they kill all their horses. They get all their weapons. Uh, they've got you know they destroy like two tons worth of buffalo meat that was going to sustain them over the the winter. And these people are out on the Yano Estacado, out in, in, the, in, the, in the great estate plains of the southern, southern plains of the United States, on their own, afoot, with no weapons. What happens to those people? Well, I don't know, and the records don't say. But I hope, as an example of the horrors of war, that the readers would say for a moment, said, what did happen to those poor people? They were out in the middle of nowhere with nothing in the middle of winter. What do you do? What happened to them? Probably they all died of exposure. Maybe some of them maybe were able to make it to other bands, but whatever happened, it wasn't good. So that's one of the instances where I think the, the, the nature of war on our individual, the person, their psyche is, is very real. That's one thing. The second I, I, I hope that people see is, you know, there is a, uh, especially for those living in the Southwest, many of the events that took place in this uh, war are readily identifiable. They're still, for, for example, there's a big battle in a place called Hueco Tanks in West Texas. There's, there's a, a state park there now. There are places that the people in the Southwest and Arizona, Texas, New Mexico, visitors from the rest of the country can go and realize that there was, you know, a couple hundred years ago, there was some really uh, important history going here, some really, really violent history going here. And it, 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 uh, I hope people realize that history is all around them, that, you know, it's not always something that is, um, you know, far removed. It's, it's, it's not, you know, outside the gates of Moscow. Uh, it's in your own backyard. And Mark, now that you are retired from your museum work, and now that this book has been out and been winning awards for the last couple of years, can you give us a preview of what you're working on next, what you're working on now? Well, okay. Um, well, a couple of things. I'm actually uh, working on a Second biography, a more detailed biography of Hugo O'Connor, uh, the first commandant inspector of the interior provinces. Uh, again, sort of a fascinating guy who uh, who fights for the. He, he's in Ireland because he's a Catholic. He has to leave his family and his home. Uh, he goes to join the army in Spain. He fights in the Seven Years' War. Ends up uh, sent to uh, becomes the governor of Texas. Uh, then again is in charge against Apaches and ends up dying in. Uh, in the province of Yucatan, the governor of Yucatan in Mexico. So what kind of biography of him? I'm also working on a, a more detailed and more um, episodic history of the Spanish uh, military on the northern frontier, sort of going from decade to decade, from about 1700 to 1820, and uh, each chapter having a, 
a story that is more human, a more personal story of individuals and events, sort of showing the progression of the history uh, from the viewpoint of, uh, of those who actually experienced. Mark Santiago is the now uh, very recently former director of the New Mexico Farm and Ranch Heritage Museum in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and is the author of A Bad Peace and a Good War. Sp- uh, excuse me, A Bad Peace and a Good War, Spain and the Mescalero Apache Uprising of 1795 to 1799, which came out with the University of Oklahoma Press in 2018 and last year won the Robert M. Utley Award in Military History of the Frontier and West from the Western History Association. Thank Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Mark. Thank you, Steve. I very much appreciate it.